Commander Alistair Cooper. Welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History video and podcast series. The series is produced at the University of New South Wales, Canberra, in partnership with the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society, Navy's Sea Power Centre and the Submarine Institute. Thank you for joining us. On the morning of the 19th of September 1940, the light cruiser HMAS Adelaide approached Noumea Harbour in New Caledonia. It was the start of a little known but hugely successful example of gunboat diplomacy that helped ensure the vital sea lanes between the United States and Australia were not threatened by a potentially hostile power. In this episode, we will discuss the pivotal role played by HMAS Adelaide in helping free French forces assume control of New Caledonia. I'm joined by three people who will tell us the story. Vice Admiral Peter Jones, whose book Australia's Argonauts in part discusses this incident and the life of Adelaide's commanding officer, Captain Harry Showers. Mr. Peter Shannon, a retired diplomat and former ambassador. During his distinguished career, he served in New Caledonia and has written about this incident. And Commander Greg Swindon, who has written the definitive history of the cruiser Adelaide. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me. First off, Peter Jones, can you describe the situation in the war at this stage and also why New Caledonia was important? Okay, so the war was uh, at that stage uh, against uh, Germany and, and Italy. Uh, Japan hadn't entered the war at that stage. And so from a maritime perspective, it was a, uh, that Germany had commenced a, a trade war. They uh, were uh, putting into, uh, into commission up to 10 auxiliary cruisers or raiders as they became known. And, uh, and so during 1940, uh, some of these uh, ships started to enter the Indian Ocean and also the Pacific. Um, and uh, the first of, the, of their uh, victims, the Niagara, was mined off, off New Zealand in, um, in May of that year. Um, from the Australian Navy perspective, uh, they'd uh, established a Coast Watch network um, in Northern Australia and also in uh, the Solomons and, uh, and New Guinea. Um, one eye to the to this German threat, but also uh, in the longer term, potentially against Japan. Um, some of the ships had gone as part of that global maritime uh, campaign to the Mediterranean. So HBS Sydney was there, the Scrap Iron Fatilla was there. Uh, around Australia coast, the, the role really was to protect the vital convoys against uh, the raider menace. Um, Adelaide was the, the east coast cruiser. Canberra was on the west coast um, and uh, towards the end of the year Perth had, uh, was heading off to the Mediterranean to relieve the Sydney. Um, from a, a, a military perspective, uh, New Caledonia was, uh, was important as you indicated about trade but also it uh, had uh, globally significant uh, deposits of uh, chromium and nickel which were used in uh, uh, armaments manufacture. Peter Shannon, on the 22nd of June 1940, France fell and in the ensuing months, in the ensuing months French possessions around the globe were, were forced to choose uh, to pledge allegiance either to the Vichy regime or to the Free French. Can you explain what was happening in the Pacific? Yes, thank you, Alistair. And could I just make a slight clarification on your introduction in, in that I actually haven't written anything uh, on this subject, but I've had a long-standing interest in it 
not least of which uh, through my wife who was born in New Caledonia and has had uh, connections to the Johnston family and I'll sort of mention that in the course of my uh, presentation. Yes, it was a complicated situation. New Caledonia didn't uh, hear of uh, the fall of, well, the armistice of Vichy until uh, it heard it on Australian radio and it was subsequently confirmed uh, on the 23rd of June, the day after. So it's intriguing that they were listening to the radio and heard uh, the mother country uh, having uh, mm. fallen. Um, the governor at that time was a gentleman called uh, Georges Pellissier. Uh, people say a relatively undistinguished fellow, a time server. Uh, he uh, was surrounded by a group of uh, uh, military types. Um, his deputy, with whom he didn't get on, um, Andre uh, Bayadel, uh, was uh, his sentiments and loyalties were a little bit ambivalent. Um, there was a general council, which was the sort of an advisory body for the local people that was operating at the time. And uh, the day after, they heard officially on the 24th of June, it uh, issued a declaration to say that it would side with uh, the British. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, uh, but uh, at that stage, Pellissier seemed to signal that he would support the General Council's view. We don't quite know what his own personal sentiments were, but nonetheless, he was under pressure, presumably from the Vichy authorities in France, and on the 29th of July, uh, gazetted the Vichy Constitution. So mm -hmm. I guess that meant, in a sense, that so far as he was concerned, uh, 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 New Caledonia was aligning with Vichy. However, uh, that was uh, immediately uh, pushed back by uh, the local people uh, and uh, uh, Policier then became concerned about a popular uprising, so he quietened down. Um, things, uh, I, I guess, bubbled along until uh, towards the end of August when uh, a warship arrived, presumably, at the request of uh, the Vichy authorities and the sort of naval commands of the France and the Pacific. Uh, and uh, that was the Dumont de Ville, uh, captained by Toussaint de Kievrecourt, a complicated name, and we'll talk a bit about him in the course of uh, our presentation. New Hebrides was a different kettle of fish. It was a condominium. Mm -hmm. That's to say sovereignty was shared between Britain and France, so there was no opportunity really for the French to act French representatives to act unilaterally if they had wanted to, but in fact the French resident commissioner, Henri Soto, was quite uh, personally committed to the Free French cause. And uh, in fact, on the 18th of July, uh, they uh, declared, uh, so far as they had the right to, mm -hmm. because it was under the tutelage of two governments, uh, uh, itself for Free French. Uh, French Polynesia was a different situation. Uh, the authorities there, their sentiment was more free French and they declared uh, uh, French Polynesia uh, free French on the 3rd of September. Uh, in New Caledonia, uh, the British side of the condominium was uh, the resident commissioner was a fellow called Richard Blandy. He reported to uh, the uh, British High Commissioner for the Western Pacific mm -hmm. who had uh, a sort of a, uh, an overriding authority, uh, and he was Harry Luke, and both of those names will come up in the course of our presentations. Um, just to give you a little picture of what it was like, perhaps while I'm scene setting, if that suits you, mm -hmm. uh, Alistair, um, 
in Canberra at the time, um, Robert Menzies uh, had been his government installed in 1939. Um, uh, at that stage, in the early 40s, and don't forget they were only three months out of the darkest hour of mm. May 1940. Uh, um, so uh, Robert Menzies, I think, was the Minister for Defence at that stage, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. His, uh, uh, an, a War Cabinet had been established and the Secretary of the War Cabinet was uh, Frederick Shedden mm -hmm. and uh, they were all meeting in East Block. Uh, those of you in Canberra will know where that is, where the National Archives is at the present time. In external affairs, the head of external affairs was Colonel Hodgson, mm -hmm. and uh, the minister for external affairs was John McEwen. Uh, so they were the key personalities in Canberra. But we must remember as we talk about this story that there were dramatic events occurring in Canberra. On the 30th of August, there was the air crash at Fairburn mm. Airport where three cabinet ministers were killed. So that was a disturbing element, leading Robert Menzies then to uh, declare an election on the 21st of September. <laughs> so that was all background noise to the events we're going to talk about. How did the Australian and British authorities react to the, um, the events in New Caledonia? Um, how did they react? Well, cautiously and carefully, and superficially um, ambivalent, I, I would say. Um, so far as Australia was concerned, uh, uh, there were uh, a number of considerations. Firstly, um, not to act precipitously so uh, the Japanese might be provoked. Peter alluded to the fact that the nickel deposits there were quite important in the manufacture of steel. Uh, in Japan and for armaments, so there was an important nickel trade there. Um, uh, Japan had an active consulate in Namir at the time, mm -hmm. uh, uh, so there was concern about that uh, because of the possible knock-on effect in Dutch East Indies. Um, uh, there was a worry about capacity if there had been resistance in New Caledonia and Australia decided to intervene, did we have the immediate capacity to deal with it? Another factor. And the third was, uh, uh, I think, an overriding view, like the British had, about uh, until the situation with the Vichy regime settled down, not to uh, completely break the ties. Now, we've got to remember, at this stage, there were uh, a number of countries in the French Empire who were declaring themselves for, um, for uh, the Free French, but there were one or two countries which weren't, and we know subsequently in September the uh, British fleet ran into difficulties off Dakar, <laughs> for example. So they, that was a strategic consideration. Uh, Robert Menzies described this in a speech uh, in January 1941, the British position, and put it in those terms. Now, the Australian position mirrored that. Um, we didn't take, we, we had our own calculations. We just simply didn't uh, sign off on what the British were doing. We had our own calculations. Um, as I say, uh, did we have the wherewithal to intervene? Uh, worried about provoking the Japanese? And uh, it suited us just to wait and see, to walk down both sides of the street for the moment. So. That was basically the orientation. Now, the situation changed in the course of, uh, from the middle of August onwards, as our information became better 
and that was one of the big problems. We didn't have too much information. Okay, thank you. Greg Swindon. The British suggested to the Australian government that they might send uh, the cruiser Adelaide to New Caledonia. Can you describe Adelaide and why she was selected for the mission? Well, the reason she was selected is, is pretty simple. She was pretty much the only ship of the right size that we had available at the time. As Peter's mentioned, uh, we had a number of uh, our cruisers over in the Mediterranean or in the, uh, the Red Sea or on convoy escort duties. Uh, our scrap iron flotilla, the, uh, uh, the destroyers, were in the Mediterranean as well and, and many of our other ships were, were already involved in, in tasks. Adelaide was on the east coast. Uh, she was a six-inch cruiser, so she had six six-inch guns. Uh, they were not modern weapons. Uh, she was an older ship, uh, laid down during World War I and uh, launched uh, in the early 1920s. But she did have six six-inch guns, uh, which was quite significant. She had a crew of about 400, uh, and so she was available to go. Uh, she could stand up to uh, the French warships that were in the region, uh, mainly frigates with uh, armed with a five-inch gun, although they were quite modern, rapid-firing weapons. Uh, so she was available. She had the firepower to deal with uh, any potential enemy, noting Peter's also mentioned the German raiders were active mm. in the area as well. Uh, she had a crew of over 400. So if there was a need to put a landing party ashore mm. uh, to act as naval infantry, then that could be done. Uh, unlike sending a smaller vessel where you know, denuding that number of uh, personnel from the, from the ship would make the ship uh, no longer viable. Uh, so, and she really was the only choice, but more than a, a little bit old, but more than capable of still doing the job. Okay. Peter Jones, the commanding officer of Adelaide was Captain Harry Showers, member of the, the famous first class to graduate from the Royal Australian Naval College. What sort of naval officer was he? Yes, so he commissioned uh, Adelaide on the day that Poland ended the war actually after her modernisation. Um, as you said he was part of that 1913 entry with um, John Collins and uh, Harold Farkham who we've heard about in earlier episodes. Um, during World War One, he had quite an eventful uh, service. He was uh, on board HMS Glorious during the, the second battle of Heligoland Bight. He was on K-22, a submarine that uh, was one of a number of K-class submarines that were, um, were in collisions in fog coming out of uh, Recife. Um, he, in fact, played a, a bit of a leading light in, in saving one of the sailors who, from a flooded compartment. Um, he, in fact, wanted to go on and become a submariner when we got the J-class submarines. Um, after World War I, he, uh, he was part of that, uh, that flotilla. But when we, did, um, when we uh, got out of submarines because they, we just couldn't afford to mm. keep them going in those post-World War I uh, time, he specialised in navigation um, and became quite an expert navigator um, and navigated a number of the cruisers during World War, uh, in the interwar period. Um, had a lot of service with the, um, with the Royal Navy, which was uh, fairly typical. Um, and um, he had a lot of experiences which were atypical. Uh, for example, he was a squadron um, navigator of a, uh, of a cruiser squadron operating in the Mediterranean um, doing a blockade work off, uh, off Palestine. So he became used to d dealing with a whole range of different sort of people to achieve 
uh, a, a name. Um, very well respected, um, really good sense of judgment, uh, and that, that I think is something that uh, really came out in, in this episode. Peter Shannon, another important figure in this story was Bertram Ballard, who is the Australian government's solicitor in Port Vila um, in, uh, in the New Hebrides, a, a condominium, as you've mentioned. Um, today's Vanuatu. What was he like and how did he become involved? Well, he's a very interesting person. Uh, Bert was uh, born uh, in Turek in Melbourne. Uh, he, uh, Ducks of Scotch College, uh, first class honours from Melbourne University, BA, LLB, and won the French Prize. So, very distinguished academic background. Carlton supporter, one uh, Maybe, maybe. Um, he uh, uh, went to um, the New Hebrides in 1934 as the uh, official Australian government solicitor, which was a, an odd position, mm. but he was working on conveyancing and real estate issues uh, linked to the Burnsville Trust, mm -hmm. which, uh, as I understand it, was a sort of an investment vehicle for people to uh, buy land, and the Trust bought land there mm. in Vanuatu, uh, in, the, in the New Hebrides. Um, he also did legal work for the Presbyterian Church, so that may have been a kind of factor in why he was there for a long period of time. Henri Sorteau, who was the French resident commissioner, had been there since, I think, 1933, so they must have had a close relationship. Mm. Uh, but uh, uh, we were being asked by uh, Harry Luke, who was the British High Commissioner for the Western Pacific in Fiji at uh, in, in end of July, early August of this period, to put somebody on the ground in Noumea. At this stage, the British had an honorary consul called William Johnston, uh, who uh, is a sort of distant relative of my wife, in fact, so I've heard sort of gossips and snippets about him in the course of time. Uh, he was the son of a, of a fellow called, uh, I think, Thomas Johnston, who was born in Australia, mm -hmm. but had gone to New Caledonia for business purposes, and William was actually born there, but he may have been an Australian citizen. And I'm curious as to why the British had an honorary consul set up there in New Caledonia at the time. I haven't sort of worked that out yet. Um, but he was doing a bit of reporting, and I think he was the Admiralty reporter, Peter. But yeah, I, I'm, he was. I'm, I'm, uh, and I'm presumably reporting back to Australia at the time? I, I'm not sure about Yeah, that. so the role of the Admiralty reporting officer was uh, a couple of things, reporting on shipping, um, also uh, things uh, like uh, helping facilitate any Royal Navy ship visits and so on. But, but really a communications link, if you like, um, and uh, and I guess we can sort of just briefly touch on that mm. is that the way that they would uh, they would um, send things through commercial cable traffic, but they would in encrypt it, and so he he would do that um, if if he had to provide any updates of of matters that uh, Whitehall would want to know, he would be on the ground as the Admiralty reporting officer. So and that was a, a known position. And so the, the, the foreign government at that time would know that person is the Admiralty Reporting Officer and has that role. Mm. Well, uh, there was some, um, uh, uh, some, as I say, uh, Harry Luke in Fiji was asking that Australia have a representative on the ground. Uh, de Gaulle wrote to Sorto, mm -hmm. the resident commission, French resident commissioner in New Hebrides at the time, urging him to consider 
going to uh, New Caledonia uh, and installing himself there. So uh, I think Canberra realised their information was deficient. So they sent a message to Port Vila asking for uh, um, uh, Bert to come back to Canberra. He was briefed in Canberra all in quick time and then scuttled up to Newcastle and uh, uh, eventually got on board a ship and arrived about mid-August and set himself up. Uh, whereabouts in Newcastle, I'm not sure. I've been curious to know where the first office was. Uh, and then started to report. And when you go through his reporting from the archives, it's quite impressive, very concise to the point. Uh, he subsequently, when he became, I guess, more familiar uh, with the scene there, uh, uh, expressed some cautious criticism of the Australian sort of wait-and-see policy and thought uh, that it's wearing a bit thin mm -hmm. and that action needed to be taken. And I think that that report, coupled with some changed views coming out of uh, Harry Luke and uh, Sorto and Blandy in the New Hebrides, influenced Canberra. Now, who in Canberra? I'm really curious to know how the scene was operating there, certainly external affairs, but what engagement um, uh, Shedden and the War Cabinet and uh, uh, the Prime Minister and Defence Minister had at the time is still a mystery to me, and I'd like to know more about that. Okay. Greg Swindon, before Bertram Ballard got to New Caledonia, um, he had a few um, alarms and excursions on the way. Can you tell us about that? Yes, it was. Um, he was quite lucky in some respects because he'd made his way up to Newcastle. He was going to board a ship to head across to uh, to New Caledonia, but. Um, some of his stationery, you know, boxes of equipment, uh, had failed to arrive on time. And so he decided to, to wait uh, until that equipment turned up. Uh, and it's a good thing he did because the, the uh, vessel he was due to go to New Caledonia in, the, the Notu, uh, after it sailed, was uh, intercepted by one of the German raiders, the Orion, and uh, subsequently captured. Uh, so if, if Ballard had actually joined the Notu, he would have been captured as well uh, and more than likely uh, searched and the uh, Australian government code book that he was carrying at the time uh, confiscated. So he was quite lucky in you know, the, uh, uh, the failure of the, uh, the rail system to get his equipment to him on time <laughs> actually meant that he was delayed in, in getting to New Caledonia, uh, but that was lucky for Australia. He wasn't the only one to have a lucky escape. Peter Jones, um, after Adelaide, uh, departed Sydney. She had a, a, a lucky escape. Can you tell us about that incident? Yes, so uh, Adelaide was ordered to go uh, to um, uh, New Hebrides via um, Brisbane where she had to fuel to then make an ex expeditious passage. So the first night out um, she uh, had a, a head-on collision with uh, the Coptic um, which was a um, a larger freighter uh, coming south and I just need to explain here the scene mm. that um, all the navigation marks uh, and uh, lighthouses and so on were, were um, extinguished of course because of the war. Ships were fully darkened so they didn't have navigation lights. So the way to provide some safety that there weren't collisions like uh, this one was that the southbound traffic would travel inshore and about 24 miles to seaward of that, of that navigation line, the northbound traffic would proceed. 
But uh, Harry Showers, uh, because he had to expeditiously get to, um, to his destination, sort of essentially cut a corner um, or, uh, going up the coast, which crossed that southbound lane. And, um, and as it all turned out, they had a, a near head-on collision. Um, the, the bridge crew on the Adelaide saw the Coptic about a mile away, and the uh, evasive action they were taking hadn't actually taken hold yet um, by the time they decided what they're going to do um, when they saw this looming ship. The Coptic never saw Adelaide at all. The first thing they heard was this, this, uh, this collision. Um, Harry Showers was in his cabin and got knocked out of his bunk. But it was just a glancing blow, as it turned out. But um, as I say in my book, just a few degrees difference could have been a ca catastrophic mm. incident. Um, and, uh, and, you know, Adelaide could have been lost. Just as a brief digression, were there any consequences for, for Showers, a navigator, and, and indeed the master of the Coptic as a result um, of this? So, no. Um, it, um, they basically, at the time, they just stopped, checked that both ships were, were seaworthy, and then they continued on. After the war, the Commonwealth Government paid the owners of the Coptic £35,000 in damages. Peter Shannon, when Adelaide did get to, um, to Numea, uh, to, to Port Vila, um, Showers met both the French resident commissioner, Henri Soto, and the British resident commissioner, um, Richard Blandy. What happened at that meeting? Well, uh, Blandy had just come back from uh, uh, a visit to Numea and assessed that the majority were positively disposed towards de Gaulle. Uh, um, so uh, that coupled with reporting that was coming out from Bert Ballard mm. in the mayor at the time too, who was assessing that uh, along the same lines, uh, uh, was, um, I guess, persuasive in Canberra uh, about um, the need to, to act. However, there had been some additional developments. The French warship the Dumont de Ville had arrived towards the end of August. And uh, on the 29th of August, I guess the garrison commander, the, the, the archives suggest that the, at the pushing of Toussaint de Kievrecourt, the uh, captain in charge of the uh, Dumont de Ville, uh, losing confidence in Pellissier, the, the governor at the time who was prevaricating, uh, and installed the garrison commander Maurice Denis uh, to uh, be the new governor, I guess in the hope that he would take a tougher line and uh, be more of a deterrent. Now, so those facts were occurring. Um, uh, both Sorteau and Blandy, though, uh, uh, argued to Harry Showers that uh, the Free French be advised beforehand if the operation was to go ahead and uh, that uh, they be advised beforehand, be, be advised beforehand. But uh, Canberra uh, hadn't actually taken a final decision about the operation until about the 9th of September. So I guess, um, which is a bit slow, but when we think about what was going on in Canberra at the time, mm. an election campaign, and don't forget in the crash at Fairburn, uh, Sir um, Brunel White, mm. the chief of the defence force, was killed. 
uh, the Minister for the Army was killed. Mm -hmm. So there must have been quite a, a sense of uh, disruption and uncertainty in Canberra to take important decisions like this. Um, so uh, one can understand why Canberra was uh, a little cautious and maybe a bit slow. So uh, uh, during the stay in Port Vila, uh, then uh, more information was coming in and uh, they felt more confident about uh, embarking uh, on the operation to New Caledonia. Okay. Greg Swindon, um, Adelaide left Vila with Henry Sotol travelling in the Norwegian tanker Norden. What was the role of Norden? And did it have a, an uneventful passage? Well, firstly, uh, the decision was made to have Sorto embarked in Norden because it was not a warship. So there was the opportunity there that when the two vessels arrived at uh, New Caledonia, that uh, the opportunity was allowed, Sorto could be disembarked from a, from a non-warship, therefore less threatening mm -hmm. uh, to those ashore. Uh, so they're hedging their bets. You know, they've got a warship uh, that uh, can do the, uh, the necessary tasks if required, uh, but they've got the uh, they've got Sorto in in the northern you know, you know, less militaristic, if that's the case. Uh, the voyage across was um, it was not without uh, threat, uh, remembering that the German. A number of German raiders were in the in the area. Mm -hmm. uh, Orion had obviously captured no two only a, a few weeks before. Uh, the location of the Dumont de Vell was unknown. Uh, they later found out she was in port, but she could have been at, at sea. So there could have been uh, possibly other warships in the area which could have engaged uh, Adelaide on the way. Mm -hmm. So having us or tow in in the in the merchant ship was less of a risk uh, of him being involved in some form of action. As it was, uh, there was no, no encounters on, during the transit and uh, I know showers conducted some, uh, uh, some at-sea firings to test the guns crews, uh, so they, they arrived safely. And we should recall that at the same time that this is happening, the, the French and the British are facing off at Merzel Kabir, Iran, and you've mentioned Dakar before, Peter, so mm. it was certainly a tense period of time. Mm. Peter Jones, could you describe um, the Dumont de Ville um, and any other opposition that Adelaide might have faced both at sea and ashore um, when she arrived? Sure, um, so as Greg mm. sort of indicated, um, uh, Dumont de Ville was a colonial sloop. Um, there was a, a class of these uh, ships which the, um, uh, the French used for really uh, constabulary, good order at sea uh, in, the, in the broader French Empire. Um, about 2,000 tonnes, so smaller than Adelaide, three 5.5-inch guns, um, and they could carry a seaplane and they could carry some mines as well and also carry uh, troops. So she'd come from Tahiti. Another ship in the class was the Admiral Charnier, who reportedly was coming from Saigon mm -hmm. to, uh, to New Caledonia, reportedly with 100 troops. I guess the key thing there was that uh, Showers probably wasn't too concerned about uh, if he met one of those but, uh, ships, but if he met two of them, um, their guns were pretty much the same range as, um, as Adelaide, and if they were 
if they were able to get on either side of Adelaide and and uh, and split her fire, well, that that could have been challenging for for Harry Showers. But uh, but as Greg indicated, they didn't really know exactly where these ships were, um, and uh, and really it wasn't until they got to New Caledonia they'd, they'd been uh, confirmed where De Montville was. Greg Swindon. Um, the commanding officer of the Namont de Ville, we've mentioned a couple of times now, um, Captain de Quiveco, if I've got that roughly right, Peter. Um, it was an important um, figure in this story um, and an interesting character in his own right. Can you tell us a little bit about him? Yeah, he's, he was a commander in the, in the French Navy, so one rank uh, lower than, than Harry Showers, but I don't think that made any, any concern for de Quiveco. Uh, he was a, very much a career naval officer. Uh, he was older than, uh, than Showers. He'd served during um, uh, World War I. Uh, he came from a long-established uh, French naval family. And he was in a very difficult position because uh, he was bound by duty to do uh, what was required by the government of France. Now, the government of France was now Vichy. Uh, so regardless of whether he privately uh, thought that de Gaulle was the way to go. He was bound by being an officer in the French Navy to follow orders from the government of France, uh, which he did. Uh, and so he was uh, strengthening, I think, the, the Vichy cause in, in New Caledonia. Uh, mm -hmm. And so he was a significant uh, character there in making you know, uh, sure that the French government uh, was rep was fully represented in that colony, uh, and so over the the course of the weeks to come, he and Showers uh, corresponded first by letter and then often in meetings um, uh, to you know basically sort out what they were going to to do uh, once the uh, the Gaulists had had uh, taken power. But that's obviously in the future. But certainly he was he was a, a man to be reckoned with and not one to. Uh, give up his, his duties lightly. Okay. Peter Shannon, while Adelaide and Norden are approaching Numia, what's going on? Um, what a, what a, what's, what's the situation on the ground? Well, uh, we uh, had mentioned that there was a change of governor at the end of August and mm -hmm. Maurice Denis, the uh, garrison commander, was the new governor. Uh, behind him was Duquievrecourt. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think they were genuinely concerned about some sort of uprising. Now, the mood in New Caledonia was uh, largely in favour of the Free French, particularly outside Mumia. Uh, the French still call these people Broussard, and a sort of crude translation of that is Bushies, but it's a, it's a bit unflattering, but they're country folk. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, uh, my wife's uh, immediate family uh, were connected to uh, uh, Bursa, as we call them, uh, free French types who were agitating uh, in Paita, sort of north of Numia, uh, uh, for something to be done. In Numia itself, there were certainly more uh, Petanist Vichy types mm -hmm. there, particularly among the military families and the uh, civil servants who had come from France. So uh, it wasn't entirely clear, <coughs> pardon me, um, as to uh, what might happen. This, I think, spooked the governor a bit. Mm -hmm. uh, and 
uh, with information uh, that he got, in fact, from the general counsel. You remember Soto and Blandy had said that they were going to contact the Free French mm. forces to say that they, Soto was coming. They, in fact, told the governor, who didn't know anything about it, and he was rather shocked. And I think that sort of prompted, on his part, a uh, declaration of a state of siege, whatever that meant in French terms in the mayor, I'm not sure. But the reality was a curfew that was imposed from about uh, nine o'clock at night. Um, so it was a rather tense situation around the 1890s, September, as the uh, Adelaide was coming into Namir. Okay. We've mentioned communications a couple of times uh, now and, and the, the absence of information mm. uh, uh, driving some sets of decisions. Peter Jones, I'm just wondering if you can describe the, the actual mechanics of how people communicated and yes. who was communicating with whom? So really, um, uh, there was a couple of entities. So there was the Honorary Consul uh, Johnson. So as, as we indicated, he was the Admiralty Reporting Officer. Um, his communications was encrypted. He was actually helped by the fact that his wife did the, the typing and encryption. So his physical ability to, uh, to write a, a message encrypted take it to the telegraphic office, get it sent, was much quicker uh, than, uh, than Bert Ballard, who had to do all that himself. Uh, this was fairly new also between the Navy and Defence and Department of External Affairs. And, and so, um, for example, Showers was sending his messages to uh, Bert Ballard via the, uh, via the Admiralty. So that that could have been a lot smoother. On Adelaide's side, of course, they had a communication centre and, and so they, they had you know, a normal communication setup which w would allow you know, the speedy, relatively speedy encryption, encryption of signals. But, um, so I think that was probably one of the learnings out of, um, out of this enterprise that you needed to have a means where Department of External Affairs and, and Defence able to communicate in, in, a, in a, uh, a more direct way. Okay. Peter Shannon, just as a quick digression, if I recall correctly at this stage, Australia had yet to ratify the, the Statute of Westminster. So we had actually not claimed our ability to conduct our own external affairs. Did that play into the, the sort of the relative um, inexperience in terms of um, international communications like this? No, I don't think so. I think, as Peter pointed out, it was essentially a logistical problem. Okay. Mm. Uh, no, I don't think that was a factor, and uh, I think there was a, a, a mood uh, in external affairs, perhaps, that they were communicating th uh, with uh, Stanley Bruce in London at the time, sort of uh, registering a view and whether it was Bruce and the High Commission people who were sort of, how they were liaising with London, it's not entirely clear. But I think I think they uh, felt a sense of autonomy, particularly on this issue. I don't think there was any hesitation. And, and probably the other thing on the ground, Johnson and Ballard worked closely together and shared information, so so that that was extremely helpful. Okay. Yeah, and both had an Australian background, as yeah. I mentioned. Mm. Greg Swindon, about 6.15 on the morning of the 19th, oh sorry, the 16th of September, Adelaide and Norden reached the entrance to Namia Harbour. Can you describe the course of the events over the next couple of hours? Well, I think the, the best possible description is uh, confusion. Uh, 
as the as the vessels arrived, uh, Showers was able to see that uh, there was a free French flag flying from the, the pilot station. You know, normally ships coming into harbour would pick up a pilot to guide them in t into port. Uh, but it was also flying the flag, do not enter. So there's a, a confusion there. Uh, he decided to, to push on with the Norden. Uh, next he encounters uh, the guard boat from Jumont de Ver. Uh, yeah, basically a small vessel from the from the frigate from the French frigate, uh, which questioned you know why they were coming into into port. Was he aware that de Montville was there, or was that the first that's, intimation? That's the first intimation that uh, he knows it's there. Uh, he continues to to push on. What they're waiting to to see is a a vessel, a small boat coming out, uh, flying the the free French flag. Uh, throwing over the side um, empty kerosene tins as a signal that they're, they're here to pick up Sorteau. Uh, that vessel doesn't arrive. Now I've heard two stories. One is that uh, there were some mechanical difficulties and so the vessel was unable to, to get to into the harbour to, to undertake that task. The other one, and uh, less auspicious, is that the, uh, the master of the vessel, uh, alarm, his alarm clock didn't go off, so he slept <laughs> in and therefore didn't, uh, didn't get down to the port in time to take the vessel out. Uh, regardless, the, the vessel that was to, uh, to pick up Sorteau didn't arrive. Uh, Showers decided to, to push on. Uh, he starts to notice that there are, there are more free French flags flying. Mm -hmm. He still has the order from the pilot station, do not enter harbour, but he continues to, to move in into the harbour. He then sights uh, Dumont de Ville. Uh, she's moored, uh, bow out uh, in the Mediterranean moor style, which is, you know, the stern is against the, the wharf, the bow is facing out. Um, but her guns are unmanned. So she's not um, presenting a, a threat to him at that point. So... Whilst he's waiting for this vessel to turn up to take Sorteau ashore, uh, he's met with, you know, a bit of confusion. You know, one lot is, do not enter harbour. The guard boat from Dumont de Ville is there saying, do not enter harbour. But he can see all of these free French flags uh, flying uh, in various areas, and the and the Dumont de Ville is in a non-threatening position. Uh, also, unbeknown to him at that time, was that the, uh, the um, artillery personnel who were manning the, um, the guns uh, protecting um, New Mia had decided to not play a part in, mm -hmm. in the activity. They declared themselves neutral, so they were not going to open fire on, uh, on Adelaide, uh, so they were not going to support either side. They were just going to sit it out and see how it went. So I think Showers at this point is facing a, a level of uncertainty, uh, decides that boldness be my friend, and he continues to push on and let's see what, what happens. Peter Shannon, uh, a foreign warship entering uh, another nation's harbour throws up some diplomatic protocol issues and, and some international legal issues. Can you talk us through what those might be? Well, I guess in theory, yes. Uh, the practice is that uh, diplomatic approval is sought before the entry of a, a war vessel. Uh, uh, 
but in this case, of course, uh, the theory was uh, uh, somewhat irrelevant mm -hmm. because uh, 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 Australia hadn't recognised the Vichy regime. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but we had made a gesture, I guess, through Soto to advise the sort of popular sounding body in terms of the General Council. So there's an arguable case there that uh, we had uh, paid respect to the sovereignty of uh, the people at least. But it was all irrelevant and I think Harry Shower showed uh, uh, extreme, extremely good judgment. Whether Canberra was aware of that issue, well I assume they were, but uh, I uh, think it was just irrelevant to the actual uh, uh, situation on the ground and all, all the key players showed good judgment. Okay. Peter Jones, um, we've heard that um, Showers intended to push on. Um, did, was his view shared by, by Henri Soto? Yes, so, um, so I guess the key point here is that, that initially Soto, of course, was in Norden. Mm. Um, and, uh, and one of the reasons Adelaide pushed on was he was concerned the guard boat would put, put a guard onto Norden and take Soto. Once, as, uh, as Greg described, he could see a lot of free French um, um, support, he then uh, told Norden to go, go to sea. Sorto came on board Adelaide, which was actually much better. Mm. Um, in fact, he told Sorto to take off his, his colonial pith helmet, put on a, on a hard hat, uh, put on a, on, a, on a nail helmet. Um, but that meant that they could then talk mm. and then try and judge uh, uh, what, what is actually happening in this situation, which is still full of ambiguity. Um, so uh, Showers sort of gave Soto a, a, a little, little bit of a deadline just for planning and said, look, if we haven't seen anything by 11 o'clock, um, we'll, um, we'll go back out to sea and take it back to Port Vila. So there was a, a very tense time where both of them were just sitting on the bridge, just waiting for events. And, um, and so the whole thing just hung in the balance. But I guess it's that thing of they were just really judging at the time how things were going. And as time went on, Harris Hills just got more confident that they could, um, uh, could carry the day. And then eventually the, the, uh, the, the boat with the free French flag came out. Um, and, uh, and also there was the, um, the, the, the to the British and the Australian diplomatic um, uh, key figures mm -hmm. came on board Adelaide as well to to give their um, their assessment of, of where things were. Greg Swindon, as all of this is going on at 11 o'clock, um, about the same time as the deadline that, that uh, Showers had set for the whole thing, the, the port station uh, signalled Adelaide to enter port. Um, Dumont Deville's been cited. What's Adelaide actually doing? How is she? Is she just sitting still, or no, she's, what's she's, going on? She's moving, uh, keeping, kept kept moving. She's patrolling the harbour. Uh, as you mentioned, the uh, suddenly uh, the pilot stations, uh, you know, do not enter harbour. Flags are removed, and it's you know, you may now enter harbour. Uh, the the uh, French vessel uh, that they've been expecting for some hours uh, eventually turns up. So. It's now the ability to, to get Sorto ashore. And, but Showers decides that he's, he's not going to withdraw over the horizon. He's going to maintain Adelaide in harbour uh, 
on the move, continually patrolling uh, uh, through the Harper precinct as a show of force, uh, so that uh, if necessary, you know, her guns can be used or she can be ready to put a landing party ashore uh, if necessary. So, and, and Bert Ballard in his papers talk about the fact that Adelaide looked like a caged tiger going up and down the harbour. Mm. Peter Shannon, the French governor, he's got a lot of, a lot of pressure on him, a caged tiger <laughs> in the harbour, um, you know, a, a decidedly um, a mixed situation ashore, pressure on him from, from the Vichy government, from the Free French, What's going through his mind and what does he decide to do? Well, I, I, I mean, he was a military officer uh, and I think had a real discipline about the way he judged this and mm. had conflicted loyalties, clearly. I think they were instinctive in, in him. Uh, uh, but he must have also been aware of uh, that evening of the 1819 September uh, that uh, uh, hundreds of uh, so-called bruzar, people from the countryside, were coming down to Numea. Now, uh, uh, the governor uh, had set up um, roadblocks on the key roads coming into Numea, and uh, my wife's family, in fact, they were vigorously free French up around Paita, and uh, uh, quite a few dozen Broussard had come to his property uh, and worked, they discussed what they should do. Um, they were worried about losing their weapons because of the roadblocks. Uh, now, my wife's um, uh, great-uncle uh, uh, delivered coal and wood down to Numea uh, mm -hmm. on a daily basis almost. So he proposed that they hide the weapons in these bags of coal and wood uh, and uh, he would take them down to Numea and they could collect them there. Now, this is in fact what he did. So they came through the roadblocks uh, down to uh, Numea were joined by up to about 2,000 people. Mm. Uh, I mean, there were a lot of people out on the street. Considerable so, number. Maurice Dennis, he must have been very concerned then that he was going to lose control of the situation, worried about the, the warship, worried about the safety and security of the uh, Provici Petanista uh, people. Uh, and I think that was a very pragmatic sort of factor in his mind then, plus his own instinct to behave in a, uh, a very uh, sort of dignified, courteous way with another uh, military officer, in this case, Harry Charles. Okay. And when Soto went ashore, what sort of reception did well, he get? Well, there were 2,000 people there down on the uh, Numea Wharf, uh, which was, uh, you know, a large number of people for a relatively small town. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it must have been just a wonderful occasion. Uh, they felt uh, liberated. I guess, in a sense. Uh, uh, they were confident they could uh, prevail in any confrontation around Namir with the uh, Petonist holdouts, but uh, there were still military people about and uh, they were certainly better armed than the, uh, the, the country folk, despite mm -hmm. the arms that my uncle had, uh, my, my wife's uncle had smuggled into Namir. So um, it, it was still a tense situation. Okay. The governor eventually did decide to to, to give way, though. What, in, how did that how did that process occur? Well, well, he did. Um, uh, uh, I don't have quite the specifics at hand to describe it, but 
uh, he conceded, uh, mm -hmm. and presumably under the protection of Toussaint de Kievrecourt mm -hmm. and uh, the ship, uh, um, uh, Soto himself that, that evening of the 19th, I think, sensed mm. that the situation was a little bit unstable and uncertain and uh, decided not to stay in Namia over, overnight, uh, but stayed outside Namia, where I'm not sure, uh, until the situation calmed down. And uh, as we know, subsequently, there were two attempted uh, pushbacks, I won't call them counter coups or anything like that, by the sort of Vichy Petonist, but they were thwarted. Mm -hmm. The civil guard in Namia had uh, come on side with the Free French, so uh, he felt, uh, I think, uh, uh, that the situation was under control and presumably uh, Harry Showers, Bert Ballard and uh, Johnston likewise were making those sorts of assessments. Uh, but, you know, I... I it's, uh, yeah, it, it's said that um, when Sorto called on Dennis, uh, Dennis said, um, I should have you arrested as a traitor. Um, and then when Sorto dared him to do that, he then said, well, Dennis replied, well, how can I do it when you have an eight-inch cruiser in the harbour? Mm -hmm. So, so, um, so I think it, he just felt that he didn't have anywhere to go, but to to give up. And he, uh, and I think he sort of said, "Well, you can take over the governorship at 3:30 this afternoon." Okay. Peter Shannon, following the the uncertainty overnight, what was the situation the following morning? Uh, well, it had settled down uh, quite a bit. As I say, there were uh, in the course of the next few days, some attempted pushback, but uh, uh, essentially the uh, um, uh, the situation had calmed. Mm -hmm. uh, the the uh, Boussard was still about as a sort of uh, voluntary force. I assume that um, Soto and others felt they could call on if they needed to, but uh, uh, as it turned out, there was no no need to. Okay. Greg Swindon, the Vichy loyalists, what were they doing? In what was their situation as this was going on? That's interesting because uh, the Crivacor was uh, the main player in, in much of this. Uh, he'd had some of his sailors ashore armed uh, uh, to maintain the peace. Uh, they showed great restraint uh, but had been you know, jeered by the, by the many crowds and being withdrawn to the ship. Uh, the Crivacor's main concern, and he discussed this with Harry Showers, was that the, he realised that you know, uh, New Caledonia was lost to the Vichy cause. You know, it was going to become Free French. So he wasn't going to you know, waste people's lives uh, trying to reverse that situation. So he was most concerned about um, getting those who were um, supporters of Vichy out of New Caledonia. Uh, he wanted to get his vessel, uh, Dumont de Ville, uh, properly provisioned and fueled so that it could leave as well and go to uh, Saigon, uh, French Indochina at that time. Uh, so he worked quite hard with, with showers to arrange for uh, the protection of, of uh, the Vichy supporters and for their um, uh, departure from uh, New Caledonia. There was uh, a vessel, the Pierre Lotti, uh, that was made available uh, to them, and uh, Showers had a 15-man guard from uh, Adelaide uh, placed on the wharf next to, to that vessel as well to basically protect it from 
any uh, free French uh, retaliation. Uh, and so the plan was those who were supporters of Vichy, as mentioned, you know, uh, military personnel, uh, civil servants, uh, would and their families uh, would be embarked in the Pierre Lotti and would depart and eventually uh, go to uh, uh, Saigon and showers guaranteed uh, their safety as part of that. Peter Jones, you've commanded a warship. Did de Montdeville have any options other than what they took up? No, and I think the, the course of action um, the commanding officer took was, was really the only one that uh, he could have. Um, the other piece to the puzzle there also was that he'd learnt that uh, the Admiral Charnier had turned back mm -hmm. to Saigon, uh, reputedly had, um, uh, had a propeller defect and so that was the reason it went back. So there was really no hope of, uh, of any reinforcement. I think the other thing was that he and Showers maintained a very cordial, uh, uh, professional relationship um, that you do see between navies. And so, um, th and I think Sorto saw that uh, Showers was the best conduit to have these discussions to resolve what was going to happen with um, de Monteville and, um, and I think that worked out extremely well. Um, and also there was a degree of face as well um, that um, the commanding officer was clearly a very proud uh, French naval uh, commanding officer and so he wanted um, a, uh, an exit strategy which uh, preserved that dignity. Okay. And certainly I'll just add there that uh, both officers worked very closely together and because there was a, um, a difference in rank, you know, Showers being a captain and Dumont, uh, De Crivacor being a commander, uh, De Crivacor uh, initiated the, uh, the activity by you know, offering to call upon uh, Showers, which is a standard naval practice where the junior officer, mm. regardless of nationality, will call upon the senior officer. So there was that that uh, normal way of doing business for naval officers, uh, which both of them found easy to, to carry out, meant that they could discuss things quite openly and frankly. Uh, one other aspect to that was that Showers was quite assiduous in terms of those discussions were quite well documented in terms of what undertakings were, were given. Um, and Showers was very uh, keen that any undertakings given were actually followed up and, and done. And, and he saw that as a key element of maintaining the trust. Showers and De Quivacor, um obviously ensured the naval um, uh, forces um, behaved as had been agreed. Did Showers have a, a, a concern more broadly than that for how the, the Gaullists um, might behave ashore? Uh, so there's probably um, uh, one bit to, to say bef before I can answer that question mm. is that um, Sator wrote to Quivacor outlining that you know he should um, leave and so on. That letter was uh, was done with the assistance of Harry Showers. So so the undertaking to De Montdeville was actually mm. from the new governor, and so there had been some reports of some retribution against. Uh, some of the Vichy supporters um, and so there was discussion then with um, uh, I think it was with Johnson and it was with Bert Ballard 
about, um, so we need to really nip that in the bud. And the, the, what we need to do is to communicate what the, what the governor had undertaken to De Monteville's commanding officer to the Gawler's committee. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's just decided amongst those three that actually Harry Showers was the best p person to, to do that. So <clears throat> unusually, Showers went before the, the Gawler's committee and the council and then explained these are the undertakings that have been done uh, you know, in relation to the um, to De Montville leaving and, and also the protection of people who had supported the, the Vichy regime. And that carried considerable weight and there was an impassioned response back from one of the members, um, Michel Pignon, I think his name was, mm. who said, yes, if the governor has given that undertaking, we will on our honour um, adhere to that undertaking, make sure that that was done. So that, uh, that helped preserve um, the relations between the, you know, the two sections of the community. And I think at that point also, um, Showers then thought he was probably out, out of his comfort zone in terms of doing, uh, doing that action. He then withdrew um, and, um, and really the only thing that Adelaide did was stay there and provide that guard, as Greg indicated, on the Pierre Lotti. Okay. So they just wanted to withdraw from the political machinations. Peter, perhaps if I could ask a question on this issue, <clears throat> was was Harry Showers getting clearance from his superiors in Australia? At the there's no, the there's section? no evidence of that. Uh -huh. So it, yeah. he, it was really on his own cognizance yeah. that he was doing that. It's interesting. Adelaide stayed in the vicinity of Newmere in the harbour for for a couple of weeks, but by the fifth of October, Peter Shannon, mm. I think Showers had decided that the situation was stable enough um, for him to mm. sail. Um, what was Sorto's reaction to this? Well, Sorto wrote a very generous letter to Harry Showers, a letter of uh, thanks, uh, but particularly thanking him for resolving this conundrum with the Dumont de Ville, uh, and was very grateful that the problem, uh, which he couldn't have dealt with, frankly, without the Adelaide being there, uh, was resolved. Um, and uh, interestingly, not, not, not long after the 5th, uh, when the Adelaide left, he went on a tour around some of the key towns in the interior of New Caledonia and visited Pater, where my wife's aunt was a young schoolgirl of about 10 or so, and she was selected uh, by the school to uh, uh, thank Suto when he visited. Uh, and her mother gave her a haircut in the style of Jean d'Arc, uh, and she read a poem, and uh, the governor came up and gave her a big hug, and she still remembers that to this day, uh, that their, uh, I guess, courage of the bush people to support de Gaulle so soon uh, in, in, era, in a time of uncertainty uh, had prevailed, and, uh, 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 and Sorto uh, had uh, shown himself to be I think courageous and well judged in uh, uh, working with uh, Harry Showers and others to bring about a very successful outcome. Certainly. Greg Swindon, how was this incident received and viewed in Australia and, and elsewhere? Certainly uh, the Australian government was happy that the situation had been resolved uh, so well. The British were very happy that the situation had been resolved. And as previously been mentioned, it wasn't the only uh, French colony around the world that was you know, 
struggling with whether to be Vichy or whether to be to free French. And this was a success because you know, of virtually no bloodshed uh, in the entire activity. Unlike uh, Iran and Dakar and later um, in Syria uh, where and Madagascar down the track as well in 1942 where they actually uh, in full-scale conflict in order to to resolve the situation uh, and you know an Australian warship Australia was involved in the Dakar um, mm. event and you know she was actually struck by uh, Vichy French shells uh, mm. during that activity so in this case uh, it was, it was a good activity. They succeeded in what needed to be done and they did that uh, with a minimum of uh, minimum of fuss, I suppose, in, in the grand scheme of things, compared with the other activities, particularly in Dakar and Syria later on down the track. Thank you. Gentlemen, in closing, can I invite each of you to provide some final thoughts on the incident? Peter Jones. Yeah, I think um, uh, um, Harry Showers in his report of the incident which was uh, tabled to Cabinet was uh, very um, uh, uh, effusive in his uh, uh, um, commendation for the work of the crew of, of the ship but also uh, for the work that Bert Ballard had done um, and also for Henry Sorteau who he thought was a, a man of great courage and, uh, and I just think that uh, um, the secret to that success of, the, of this episode really was how um, those three key men each had each other's respect and they were able to navigate themselves through this uh, ambiguity to end up with the outcome that really the, the people in New Caledonia wanted. Peter Shannon. Well, um, my former DFAT colleague Denise Fisher has written on this subject and she says that this was the first manifestation of an independent foreign policy action by Australia. Uh, I think that's, that's the case. Uh, it was uh, uh, a complicated situation in Canberra for the reasons I mentioned earlier. Mm. When one can only imagine the stress mm. and strain that was going on here at the moment as well as an election campaign being, being uh, prepared and waged. Uh, but uh, the players were given uh, autonomy uh, and uh, produced an outcome that uh, was ideal for Australia. Um, uh, interestingly, John McEwen, who was the Foreign Minister, and I still haven't quite worked out what, I haven't gone through the archive sufficiently to, to, to see where his fingerprints are on the various decisions that were made, but he says in his memoirs, or people have quoted him, as saying that this event was the most sign significant event of his political career. So he personally regarded it as mm -hmm. uh, an achievement and I think that reflects in his own calculation that it was complicated and risky mm. and showed a degree of, um, I guess, determination on the part of the decision makers in Canberra that this, there were clear Australian interests engaged here and we were going to pursue them. The, the events also showed the crucial importance of having information on the ground and the decision to bring Bert in uh, mm. uh, in early August was well founded. They got the right bloke. He, mm. he spoke excellent French. Uh, New Sorteau, uh, no doubt, had a connection with Wally, uh, William Johnston. Uh, and his reporting was uh, crucial at key times, particularly in the run-up to the decision uh, uh, in Canberra to go ahead with the operation. 
So that was, mm. that was important. And I think finally, uh, the uh, flexibility and judgment of the key players, Harry Showers in particular, I think uh, uh, in that very difficult moment uh, of negotiating with Toussaint de Kievrecourt and uh, uh, getting the uh, Vichy Petaniste uh, mm -hmm. out of the country was um, admirable. Thank you. Craig Swindon. I think it uh, is a classical, uh, classic uh, situation of the flexibility of, of uh, naval forces. So you know, the ability to do the diplomatic role, the constabulary role and the military role uh, and, and quickly change from one activity to, to another. Uh, so obviously you know, Adelaide goes there, uh, Showers does quite well in the diplomatic role, uh, the crew do very well. At one point they, they march through uh, the streets of Numea. Uh, there's a guard uh, with rifles and bayonets fixed but the band's playing. And then they go to the uh, the war memorial, and there's a ceremony there. So, showing that diplomatic side of, of the ability of naval forces. But then there was, if things had gone badly, uh, thankfully they didn't. But if they had gone badly, then you know it could turn very very quickly to a military activity, and that's where you know Adelaide six-inch guns could have been used against Dumont Deville. Uh, they could have put a landing party ashore of you know, in excess of a hundred men to to deal with uh, some of the Vichy supporters that didn't come to that. But it was the they were carrying the big stick, uh, but they were talking softly. Peter Jones, Peter Shannon, Greg Swindon, thank you for sharing the fruits of your knowledge and your research. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast and that you return for other great stories about Australian naval history. You can find this one and others by searching for Naval Studies Group in your podcast app. Thank you.